You are now entering the transit zone. Welcome back to the Transit Zone. I'm Peter Clark in Melbourne, Australia. I go Kingston in Comboyne, New South Wales. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which we record and produce these podcasts, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and the Beapai people of the Port Macquarie region of New South Wales. We pay respect to their elders. The Voices for Community-Based Movement of centre-right independent candidates challenging Liberal Party incumbents in ostensible blue-ribbon seats is clearly an historic political movement in Australia and will surely play a significant role in the next federal election due in just a few months. One of the reasons we've been reporting on it and analysing its attributes, candidacies and implications here in the transit zone. And we've become used to meeting the front-of-house people connected to the movement including candidates and current and past independent MPs. But today, one of the backroom operatives and a key figure in what became a model for the movement when Cathy McGowan won the northeastern Victorian rural seat of Indi from then-leading Liberal MP Sophie Marabella back in 2013. That model kept operating. Helen Haynes, the current Indi MP, is also a Voices for Independent, a key figure in forging that approach and that series of electoral successes was Dennis Ginnivan. Dennis Ginnivan, welcome to the Transit Zone. Thank you very much, Peter. Lovely to be here. Okay, Dennis, you're a social worker in regional Australia, founding member of Voices for Indi, a past president of Voices for Indi, been on the 2013, 2016 and 2019 campaigns for Indi. What on earth happened after 2019. When and how did you decide to become the Voices Whisperer? (laughs) I've not heard that term, but it it sort of resonates a bit, Margot. But I think it became clear after Helen Haynes' win in 2019 that this idea wasn't just a brush of one-off opportunity that went away again. It actually became an idea that had uh, merit and prospects for continuity. And I think around that time, well, leading up to that election, and definitely after 2019, there was a lot of interest and inquiry about what the hell, just like you asked then, Margot, what the hell happened in Indi that has led to this? So for me, I felt, well, having been involved with quite a lot of the processes along the way and still am, I thought maybe what I could do is uh, get on the road, both actually and metaphorically, given the pandemic as it turned out, get out on the road and respond to people who from all over the place who were making contact. Because up until that time, Voices for Indi, which I was still with until late 2019, it had undertaken lots and lots of presentations at conferences and professional training opportunities for organisations, community groups, leadership programs. But the thing was, it sort of felt that whilst it was good information, it didn't actually lead to the next step, which was actual action on the ground. So I felt that one thing that was always missing was to sit down and have a direct conversation with the people who had expressed interest, to hear them out off the record, just to hear where you're at, what are you thinking, what would you like to do, how can we work together if if it's at all possible, to actually form a collaborative rapport and relationship as opposed to some guy speaking at the front of a conference somewhere, which is sort of like interesting information, but where do you even start anyway? 
So it really became a much more of a personalised and active outreach. And that's what I felt I could do in my time beyond late 2019 to really follow up on a lot of those inquiries that we're having. So you're a one-man band. I know you've called yourself the Voices for Australia Project, but I've seen you on so many Zooms. And now, of course, you're driving around the country. It almost seems like a mentoring role. And if something goes wrong, you can find a way to sort it out. You can say, now, this is how kitchen tables work. It's almost like still being a social worker, like you're doing basic community building, except you're doing it all around the country now. Yeah, well, I think the term community building is probably more evocative of this because it is a project of community development, doing something of a strategic nature about the issues that people have faced and so therefore getting around in front of the problem rather than just responding to the the issues that people face as a result of the problem. So in this case it was about people feeling seriously disengaged and cynical, feeling helpless in the way in which they couldn't see the door through which one could travel to participate in politics. So I did have that idea of supporting people to see even on the back of telling the Indi story, which is, I always like to call it a pretty good one to dine out on. It is of interest to people, and particularly if they've got an interest in in any form of politics, really. I was able to sort of build the rapport and the sense of trust and connection around that, but also to never get into a situation where this is prescriptive. It's actually instructive, but not prescriptive. It really isn't something that's been run from the top. It's community, it's citizens, it's people who care about their children. Dennis, as an observer, there are a lot of assumptions here, aren't there? And I'm just thinking in my head, seeds falling on fertile ground. One of the assumptions is that there's something very broken. But as I look at Indi, you had Sophie Mirabella and, of course, uh, Zali Stegel in Warringah had Tony Abbott. Does it need sort of a nasty enemy as part of that scenario? Or is there something broader, deeper that's broken about our system? I think the latter, Peter. Whilst some people might attribute like a trigger person, but bottom line is, unless you come up with something better than a problem, you haven't really come up with much at all. So it's very easy to be negative, to be critical, to be feeling as if, oh, look, there's no point to anything. They're going to be here forever. It's got to be in some way projecting a sense of positive strategy to, in effect, find the panacea to the, or the antidote to cynicism. And we, we the Voices for Indi project and our, our campaigns have always sort of said that, in a way, participation in something, getting involved in something in some way, is the antidote to cynicism and disengagement. So there's lots of other factors that have happened along the way too, which we can go into. But that, I think that's probably the trigger is to be clear that we've got to do something better than just being negative about what we've got. Now, you mentioned other factors. Is the generation thing, and I think Cathy McGowan referred to this, I'm hearing this theme repeated too. There are many themes being repeated, but the young people and the generational reactions. Is that an intrinsic part of this, Dennis? I think that is. I think there's a sense of younger people feeling that our generation, I'm I'm, I'm in my 60s, but our generation has not done all it could to set up a good future for them. And I think there's also correspondingly a sense across the older generations that, well, that's right. And maybe we need to step up to our own responsibility too. So I think it's a a two-way aspect to that across generations. I think there's lots of other factors that came into it as well. Like, for example, 
whilst Cathy's campaigns and terms as the MP was quite a big thing. But when Helen Haynes started, it became something of a much bigger sense of possibility. So in a way, those two demonstrated, they became an indicator, yeah, you can do something, and it's happened, and it works. And in some little joint called Indi, that's where it's happened. And let's hear about it. My theory of the whole thing politically is that, in effect, it's because liberalism has been expelled from the Liberal Party that there's a there's people with liberal values who are very unhappy. And the trick with the Voices Group is for them to find common ground with maybe Green or, or Labor voters and work out what they agree on. And this process, this kitchen table thing, where you actually have to sit back and listen to all different views about what they want in their representative and what their issues are. How does that work? Because we're so used to, we just yell at each other. It must be a very strange and interesting process to, to just listen. Yeah. I think my own existence was peppered with opportunities to shout at the television. It used to be that politics was all about watching the news, watching the, the commentary on the news, and then shouting your dis- disappointment at it and all, all in the comfort of your own house. You know, the psychiatrist would probably say there's a few problems with that because you're shouting at an inanimate object and going nowhere with, with it all. Margot, what happened? The opportunity was for people were courteously invited to come along, participate in a democratic process where you're going to be respected, your views are going to be heard and respected, and then we'll hear from other people. Likewise, they would be respected for their views. So it really um, set up uh, an unusual circumstance where you could talk about politics without getting into halfway through the, the dinner party and it all turns to custard because everyone's in vehement disagreement. So we, we had a discipline, and there, there, it's not rocket science, but there is a discipline to ensuring that nobody gets disrespected, that everybody gets heard, that we capture what people say when they feel comfortable and, and um, are safe in saying what they feel. And the facilitator's job is to really keep an eye on that dynamic. I think that's the core of it, is to have a, a way in which people have safety and know others in the room. It's not as if it's all strangers. It's actually a, a, a relational invitation to come along and participate. What are the key features of a, a Voices for group? What is a Voices for group? It's a really good question. There's no one formula, but the key elements are they start out with a, a group of people who are yearning to do something about their politics, as we've just said. People who likely don't see a door they have for themselves into politics, but people who probably don't see what a party that they feel as if that's the one for them to participate in. And I think I, sh- I should say my understanding is the party membership anyway is dropping rapidly. Yes. And, and the Richmond Football Club now has more members than all of the parties combined. The power and influence of a smaller and smaller number of people in our politics, we would argue that's not a good sign or a good healthy thing. So the voices groups, in a sense, are pushing back on that idea and actually bringing more people into the equation. It's never about getting rid of somebody to replace them with somebody else as the primary strategy. That might come out of the process over time. But what we wanted to do, the groups would form with a variety of people from different perspectives in political persuasions and standard of living and whatever it is, but form into a a group that would have a constituted structure, could be pretty simple structure, but where there is one common statement of purpose 
And that statement of purpose is something that we all needed in each group, I believe. It's important they all agree to what it is they're on about and what it is thus they are not on about. So without that, you've just got a group of people who have, um, you know, speaking about politics from an opinion point of view, but not on behalf of an entity that has a, a, a strategy, a commitment, a set of values and structure around it to enable the processes to work properly. There's an accountability within, once you get the structure, of course, to run the process properly. I've noticed a big difference between the city and the regional groups. Like a lot of the regional groups, they sort of bring the elders together of all sides and it's like it's a a voice that goes to their member and they don't really want to have an independent candidate, whereas a lot of the inner city ones that they were formed to do their kitchen tables, find out what people want and then find a candidate to represent those values. What would you say the key differences are in, in the way a a regional or rural seat and, and city seat operates, apart from the enormous distances yeah, involved. Yeah. I think what you just alluded to then is the age group of the rural voices groups. They are older. It's a different cohort. I think rural people, because of the maybe the pressures of the distance, and that mean that people can't get to meetings in the same ways, and particularly if they've got children or jobs that keep them till later in the evening and then getting home. So I think there's a, there's a, there, that distance thing obviously is a key one too. There is a cultural thing like a willingness to give the incumbent the benefit of the doubt, to say, well, they got the job, you know, good on them. You see them in the community. You feel a sense of, right, oh, they've got their job. And unless things are going really badly, I think people just generally, I'd say probably more accepting, and that's, it's a really big thing to sort of make a blunt generalisation, but I do feel that there's probably more of an acceptance that, oh, well, everyone's, everyone has their moments, ups and downs, you know, their, their friends or their, their children in the community. You have a different kind of sense of relationship with a, with a, a rural MP. So there's some of the things come to mind. A couple of people have said to me, Dennis, that unlike the Liberal Party and the, and the Labor Party, which has become more and more divorced from real people, that the National Party is sort of like a, you grow up with it and it's, it's part of the community. So it's not just a matter of changing your vote. If you take a stand, then you, there can be other ramifications. Does that make sense? I think there is a sense of loyalty. Families in rural communities sort of have to the traditional voting way. But I think one of the big things that's shaped my thinking on this too is the Gabby Chan's book, Rusted Off. It actually said to me, and it sort of resonated quite strongly actually, that the historic thing is one thing, but now that idea that people would have automatic loyalty no matter what, I think is becoming less likely to happen, that people are looking for a contest, not a a safe seat, but having a sense of contest and the voices groups in a way are creating opportunities for a contest to occur and many commentators I guess say that it's very difficult for Labor to win a rural seat but a palatably conservative enough independent community independent whether with deep roots into that community can do and I think that's been borne out here in Indi. That's part of the bigger change that's happening actually. Yeah, the other thing that's really intrigued me is that, you know, once you do your kitchen tables and you get your top five issues or whatever, a lot of groups have these incredibly detailed policy discussions with experts from their local community and forums and Q&As. There seems to be a real interest in policy, which seems completely abnormal, you know, these days. Something big's happened, but I, I can't quite 
quite work it out. One of the things that comes to my mind right there is the dynamics of the engagement process, the kitchen table conversation process, is that people are in some ways are not quite shocked, but uh, they're surprised at how easy it is to participate in some kind of political process when invited and when it's run properly. I think people realise that there's an opportunity to actually take, take this seriously and take it seriously from behalf of my kids and my grandkids to go deeper and, and get involved. And like you said, the issues that come up out of those conversations, they often have been brought up in, in uh, you know, town hall, virtual town halls of late, webinars, where there's sort of like a, a yearning for that sense of how do these big ticket issues, how are they going to play out in, in my own local community as opposed to just national policy? It's also how does it apply in particular parts of the, you know, the country? And, and, and specifically where one lives. The projections, for example, of climate change, I'll use this as, a, as an example more than a, the, the only one, but the implications for climate change in farming communities is kind of massive. It could change everything. What's grown? When's it grown? How many people can live there? Whether the water's going to be available? You know, there's all these sort of things that I think people are starting to realise. National policy is one thing, but how does it play out and how do, how do I find a way in which the voices of a particular region get to be heard and to be taken into account. Dennis, it's interesting to hear you and Margot talk about the policies, and I want to come back to that in a moment, but can we circle back to the kitchen table or the variation on the kitchen table? I'm intrigued to know how they actually play out. Now, there's an overarching aspect to our democracy, and that's compulsory voting, started early in the Federation, 1924, and that's been woven into our political culture now, and most of us have a leaning towards one party or another, and we know that we don't have to be dragged out to vote. We're just going to go and vote on election Saturday. So I think that's an important given within our democracy. But take us into the room in a generic, if you like, kitchen table discussion. You've got Labor, you've got Liberal, you've got Greens, you've got Non-Aligned, you've got National Party, all gathered around. You talked about the facilitation, which must have to be pretty skilled. What's the very character? How do people speak to each other? Is it sort of a, a depolarizing process? Give us a sense of just the texture, the, yeah. the tone of the language. Okay. So the facilitator would, would warmly welcome everybody to the event. Everyone in the room would know at least one or two people. So there's this comfort and reassurance given by the facilitator that we're here with a few understandings, and that is how the dynamics will work. So the job tonight, you know, or today, is to listen to what others are saying and to respect and honour the way they got to the positions on things with their own, what's happened in their life along the way, so that just for once, we're not turning a discussion about politics into, like you said, a, a polarising event, but rather what's important for other people in your community is effectively just as important as what's important for oneself. So if you want to live in a community where someone, other people are doing it hard or you don't understand, let's use this opportunity to take into account and respect where everyone else has come from. Here's one example of a conversation I was facilitating where there was an older gentleman, I'm going to say maybe in his 70s, and there's also a younger woman who is a single mum, and she said that of herself. As a facilitator, I sense that he sort of shuffled in his seat a little bit when he realised this person was a single mum. And I just felt, well, I just need to be careful but make sure that everyone comes out of this feeling okay. 
Anyway, so when when the, the young woman explained that why she had come here was to do the best she can for her son as his parent, to bring him up well, to be having a sense of him, why this is important and to engage in politics. And even though it's it's tough for her, she stood firm in, in her wish to make sure that happened. And I could just almost sense that the older gentleman was not quite, was almost metaphorically sort of wanting to take her under his wing a bit and actually say, oh, fair enough. That's bloody, that's pretty gutsy. That's, and, you know, to actually realise until you actually heard what the other person was thinking and, and then saying, how would you know apart from just make some, some form, some opinion that could be totally wrong of someone else? So that's quite a granular aspect of these conversations. Is there's, there's the questions, there's the respect, and, but then there's all this sort of content that's sort of below that you find out in the process itself. And I'll just use one other example. Was we're going around the room and there's a fellow, he had his arms folded and he's rolling his eyes and he's looking at his watch and at the ceiling. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you didn't have to be trained in body language analysis to work out what was going on here. But um, he may as well have said, my wife told me to be here. So I figured, righto, again, to reach out to people who, you know, think, what's, what's the point of all this rubbish, you know? Who are these characters? And so I asked him, what for you are the big issues in, around here where we live, in near Wodonga, and uh, what can we do about them? So off he went in a big arc of um, federal and state, local government sort of domain responsibilities, but that didn't matter. We just wanted to hear him out. And then we got to the end of this speech. I said, okay, Michael, so you're, you're saying like A, B, C, and D, E, F, G, and H. Is that right? Just to make sure that the scribe captures what you've just said and writes it down in the way in which you want it said. He had this sort of shocked look on his face and he said, nobody's ever listened to me before. And I think he meant it. I think he's just sort of like, typically, you say all this stuff and, you know, someone's going, yeah, yada, 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 yeah, whatever. When he stops talking, I'll tell him what I think, you know. But never... um, Hearing out, and, and I don't mean to mean to sound, you know, what a great facilitator. I mean, I'm just saying that the process honours the idea that you treat people that have all got a, um, a a place they've come from, that we're all in, we're in it together in a sense. We've got to build policy or strategy that takes into account other people in our community, not just ourselves, and hear that out and sort of understand at that sort of micro level, what's going on with people around you. Dennis, it makes me think of uh, the social researcher Hugh Mackay, who absolutely, yeah. uh, who says that one of our drives, apart from sex, power, money, etc., is to be taken seriously. Yeah. That it's, it's a deep human drive to be taken seriously, and that uh, accords with what you just said. Now, I've done quite a few panels myself over the years, but differently from the way you describe them, more formal, perhaps in journalism panels. Watch that ebb and flow of agreement, disagreement, the emergence of commonalities. That process intrigues me. But I've also noticed in doing that job, someone will make an apple pie statement and someone else will make an apple pie statement, perhaps quite generalised and abstract, and they'll sort of agree on the surface, but beneath that are a whole lot of assumptions and actual disagreements. Do you see that happening within those kitchen table groups? There's always going to be a sense of, well, I don't necessarily agree with that, but it's interesting to hear what other people are saying. Some people on the basis of uh, realising what others in the group are saying, that maybe maybe I need to recalibrate my own thinking on this. You know, it, it, it's, it's a two-way thing. It's not as if everyone's automatically fixed. There's no shame in actually changing your views on things on the, with, on the basis of new incoming information. 
that idea of what you just said, though, identifying the commonalities, there's a big part of the process is about we live in the same part of the world. We live near these mountains or these rivers or this beauty and the townships of the history and culture, the indigenous people. We all got all these things of why you want to live there. That's all in common and they're typically positive things and challenging things too. But there's a sense of we're in this. There's a way in which we could find our voice that we bring these things together and, and put the issues and the opportunities and the potential strategies into a report that anyone standing at the next federal election might decide, yeah, I really need to listen to this stuff because this is what people are saying when they feel safe, not when they're feeling they've got to say what they feel they should in public, you know, at a public meeting, for example, but rather inside of the safety and the you know, surety of a process that brings out deeper positions on things. You're listening to another Transit Zone podcast. I'm Peter Clark with Margot Kingston. Our guest, the Voices for Whisperer, Dennis Ginnivan. So, Dennis, one of the things that the Voices for Indine model does is bring people together, what you like about the region, what you don't, is that Gradually, you get a sense that the seat is part of your identity, the seat, and you sort of broaden your outlook on the seat. And that, I would have thought, when you get a sense of belonging, then that is a big challenge for the major parties who just want you to turn up and vote and not really care about what happens in the next neighbourhood or whatever. But also that process brings together a lot of people who are enthusiastic, who've got lots of skills, and who have prepared a campaign before they find a candidate, so that better and better candidates come up, candidates who, you know, they want to know they've got a chance before they upend their whole successful lives, that they can rely on that. That's basically it, isn't it? Well, I think it's certainly given people a sense of confidence. And I mean, people with great skills and capacity just to consider the prospect of standing in politics because they can see that that strong base and process that's led to informed and energising people to want to be part of a process whereby local voice gets heard and gets represented at a at another level, like in Parliament. Those opportunities are much greater for someone to say, yep, I, I will throw six months of my life into considering this and, and doing a campaign because I can see that this, this whole thing could work. So that's what's changed. I think it used to be, oh, look, you know, safe seats. You, you know, the, the, my experience had been that Indi had always been like a was a safe held seat since Federation, essentially. Mm. Um, and that, mate, you're wasting your time if you think that you're going to change this, mate. You know, there'll be this sort of, you know, language of um, sort of sensible. It's not. It's nothing's going to change around here. I think now that people are becoming more connected, the pandemic, in a way, has become a friend of communities in rural areas and big massive electorates because people can connect from all over yeah and that's that's changed and and the culture of doing that that's only something I think it's only been in in everyone's mind really for the last couple of years in terms of it being a you know a viable strategy um, so people are starting to see I can connect with this in a very different way to how it used to be so what in your opinion makes a voices for candidate what is a voices for candidate well, what qualities do they have? It's important that they, in a way, have come from an emergent voices for process, which is community engagement. They have a sense of what's happening in the community and what it is that 
people feel and want in that community. Maybe they have a strong history and capacity for advocacy on behalf of the community in which they live. Standing on a single issue is not a good, and, and or a self a self-determined issue of what is the most important. I think it's, there's got to be a sense of openness to hearing out what the community are going to say, and that's often what comes through the voices processes where there's been a, a clearer spelling out of a, a clear view of what the issues are going to be. And I think also a community independent candidate, it's not someone who's like self-appointed, if you know what I mean. Like, I mean, anyone can stand up and say, look, uh, I'm an independent, vote for me. But I'd say like a community independent where the voice is sort of styled is one who actually comes through a process and an engagement that leads to them getting, in effect, like the reluctant hero, but getting the gig. Just about all the candidates, except Zoe Daniel, who's a public figure, look profoundly nervous. And I just look at them and go, wow, you've made a big change in your life. And it's pretty scary. And in some ways, that's one of the most endearing factors or features is that people feel, well, they're not turning this on just for the cameras. They are just like our community. If anyone else is doing that, of course, they'd be nervous or you know, feeling as if, God, what have I done? Apprehensive. But I think it's a natural thing. And I think people realise that, of course, it's a big job. And certainly with a community independent candidate, the community realises it has a responsibility for this to work as well. That's the other half of this compact. It's not just vote them in. The word INDI, for example, in, in our electorate, it gets wheeled out every three years for the election, vote someone in and all go home again. This process is really what happens between elections is just as important is what happens at elections. Well, I've noticed with Cathy and Helen and Zali, I know Cathy brought young people to Canberra to show them how to make things happen. And yep. there's so much feedback. There's so much transparency about the vote and why and consultations and town halls. It's, I mean, look, it's got a bit of a feeling of participatory democracy about it. Yeah. I know that Helen Haynes has on her website how she's voted yep. on, on each thing. But probably more importantly is why. Often that information seems to be sort of buried a bit. And some parties that don't actually want to show that really they've just been, there's a sense of compliance in the way they vote. Exactly. And that's really coming home to roost now, isn't it? You know, the, the moderates all voted with Barnaby Joyce on everything, including yeah. voting against climate change as an emergency, voting against debate on a Federal Integrity yeah. Commission bill, voting to save Porto. And they just come in and vote. I think some of them are just shocked that they're being asked about this. Yeah, that's the deal, isn't it? I mean, the deal is that you're there to represent your community. I mean, obviously, people have to make their own judgment calls. And compromises. Yeah, yeah, and, and that's right. But in the end, if people accept that their representative is not just blindly going one way or the other, and even if they don't agree, they'll accept, well, that, that person's had to use their own intellect and judgment and everything else to vote the way they did and if I think people would accept that you know it's not it's not such a big ask but if, if it's only one way voting for the party outcome then how does that represent and what's the process by which that's represented the community or the electorate where they come from Dennis let's talk about campaigning and I'm very aware of the be your best self that sort of ethos philosophy if you like an ethic from Kathy McGowan and we're seeing it elsewhere but we're in the phony war phase of this campaign already, aren't we? Federal election 2022. 
And we're already seeing, like Tim Wilson, using the rhetoric, the propaganda, if you like, of someone like Zoe Daniel as just a, a Labour Green front. And we're seeing all that happening already. So we can only imagine what it's going to be like further down the track. I think there's going to be a fair bit of dirt flying. So what does an independent candidate do about that? Do they choose what to engage on and ignore the rest? I'm very interested in the work of the linguist in the USA, George Lakoff, who came up with the idea of the truth sandwich. He applied it to journalism particularly, where you relegate the falsehood but foreground the truth. Is there some sort of technique that independent candidates can use to not get too down in the gutter, too involved in the mud fight, and keep that ethos? Yeah, it's a good question. My sense is that when people say things like that, it's just a, it's a massive leap of logic and uh, you know, truth. But the thing is, back home in the electorate where people come from, I don't think they buy it in that way. I don't think they buy the same positioning, a statement that's made, put out in Sydney or Melbourne. Therefore, how does that play out in, in Indi? But I'd say not very well. I think because people realise they're only saying it for, that, for a reason. And uh, why would you believe that reason? I think it can actually be counterproductive, actually. I think It's old style. I mean, one of the things I've found about this movement is is people find it so refreshing when you're not playing the man or the woman, when you actually are being nice. It's one of the most attractive things about these groups because it's so different to what we're used to. Yeah, well, that's right. And it's as if the rules don't have to be just doing that stuff, you know, opposing and playing hardball and making derogatory comments about candidates just because all of a sudden they're standing as a candidate and it becomes like, okay, turn the switch on. Let's start calling them puppets of the Liberal Party or the Labor Party or whatever because we'll win points. It's some kind of a I think a pretty low-grade marketing strategy. Obviously, some people think it's a good idea, but to me, I think it's counterproductive. This stuff is too serious to be played as some kind of game like that. We're running a country here, where, you know, like it's actually a big thing that, that matters. It's not some kind of, a, you know, a game to be had. Okay, I've got to ask you this. You're running a one-man project. There's 38 groups around the country. Kathy's sort of the unofficial patron. What is the relationship between the Voices for Movement and the Simon Holmes Accord Climate 200 funding? I don't know what you'd call it, this megalith or something. What is the connection, if anything? Well, the Voices for Movement is really about the groups and the people I've been speaking about who... Just ordinary people who want to do something about and come together and do something about the politics where they live. So it's a Voices for Movement. When, when candidates emerge, I sense that's where the Climate 200 group may be supportive of candidates who's you know, in their campaigns. But everything leading up to that is where I've been involved in is more the, to do with the, the process by which communities become stronger, have a sense of power and influence in their own politics and democracy. And what happens after the candidates emerge in a way is it's the candidates' business. The group voices groups aren't there to run a candidate's campaign. It's sometimes reported in the media it's all the one thing, but really the groups, they're not running a campaign. I mean, some members of the initial voices processes may decide to join a campaign, but the voices groups themselves are not like a pseudo-party running a campaign. So in a way, it's, it's, it's sort of a separate thing, even though it's all about the emergence of independent candidates. But they, I think, the Climate 200 have much more of a focus at the electoral end of the spectrum. 
One thing that I'm very interested in is as this whole movement's got momentum and it's now fashionable and now it's got status and all that, you can see a lot of groups coming in late and a lot of independents coming in late. How are you going to decide or, or, or should you decide whether they are voices for independence or not? It's such a big movement and so unwieldy now, there's bound to be enormous issues around whether you're a community candidate or not. How are you going to try and, and, and walk across that minefield? <laughs> that's, a real, that's a really good question, Parker. Because <laughs> uh, I think in a way all the, all the levers don't really exist in, any, in anyone's sort of you know, proximity because obviously – People can approach this from whichever direction they wish. When you were asking me before about what's a voices for group, what identifies that process, voices of group, and what identifies the, uh, the, the emergence of a candidate who has some kind of a, a clear connectivity with what, the, what it is that the community wants, then to me, to, just to be even able to put those parameters up and say, look, here's some of the key things that you'd use if you're going to use it, put together a definition. I don't think there's any one way to, you can't, you know, influence it other than to maybe develop the narrative around that to describe by which method people got to where they, you know, where they yeah. are. I mean, someone could just walk out the door of the house this morning and say, look, I'm an independent, vote for me. And no, of course I could. And so therefore, you know, fine. But that's not to say, therefore, it automatically means that they've got a community connection or or even endeavouring to. It might just be that I'm just going to wing it and give it a crack. I had to laugh when Jason Felinski from McKellar started calling it a franchise because I tell you what, if it's a franchise, it's it's pretty fluid. It's pretty flexible. It's, you know, it's, it's pretty local. It's certainly not top down, is it? No, that says something that's not very uh, honouring or sort of dishonouring of the people who put the work in as just community members. Like as if we're just signed up to a franchise where all the power lies with someone else and that is just, you know, it's just not true. Everyone knows it. I think it, it's to their disadvantage to criticise it in that way because a lot of people out there, they know, they know fully know what the story is and, and aren't going to be convinced by somebody who just doesn't like them. Any way in which we can support people to get interested in democracy and citizenship and responsibility to others I think it's a good thing and should be welcomed. I shouldn't be shouldn't be run out of town or attempted to be. Dennis, my final question goes to the hard realities of the numbers. And we know when we come to watch all this happening on election night and watching the numbers fall, that the independents in these blue ribbon liberal seats to have success have to come in second during That's that right. process, yeah. don't they? At least. First or second? <laughs> First, obviously, would be remarkable. But they have to pull back the primaries from the Liberal incumbent and they have to have that pipeline of preferences across Greens, Labor, yep. Liberals, etc., and non-aligned. So take us through that calculus. How does that all work? And I want you to tie that to the way you campaign to bring about that result. That's a good question. The numbers are, are, are something like, like a community independent candidate got 30% of the vote and the incumbent, whoever it is, likely to be Liberal or National sometimes, there are a couple of Labor seats, but I don't think they, they, they haven't got identified a candidate as yet. Whoever the incumbent is, if they get like 45% or less, if it's a relatively strong vote from the other parties like Labor and Greens, then the preferences would go to the independent, typically, rather than to the Liberal or National. Yeah, but Dennis, you've also got to have a significant number of Labor and Green voters 
joining with Liberal voters to make her second. That's right, yes. That's how the campaigning has to be completely yes. different. And that's where um, when people can see that this is a better choice than voting the old way, then that's that's what happened. I think that's what happened in Indi was that whatever that percentage was, but people thought, look, I can, we can do better. And, and it's not about any one party, but about what's good for the electorate and the community. So I think the formula's in there, Peter. But in terms of how that campaign works and unfolds in any electorate, I think being respectful, it's not rocket science, but being respectful, being welcoming, being uh, engaging with people who may be coming from a different perspective over time to show that we've got something better going on here than just same old, same old, then I think people will, will come across. That's really, if it's perceived to be authentic and genuine and community-based from within their own local community as opposed to a strategy that might be driven by a party from outside, then I think people can see maybe maybe this is just worth doing this, giving this a crack this time because I'm not confident about how things are going to unfold with the existing, you know, with the status quo. Well, I don't think there's any real rocket science formula, but there's certainly some things people can do to not go low, to stay high, to stay optimistic and stay energised and draw people and volunteers to something that's an enjoyable and fun thing to be involved in as opposed to a sinister or menacing kind of uh, contest because people are over that. It doesn't work, I reckon. Dennis, thank you so much for being with us in the Transit Zone today, giving us a bit of a glimpse beneath the hood. And I think you'll agree that uh, as all this unfolds over the next few months, it's going to be pretty intense, I think. A lot of independent voices for candidates in the field now. That'll probably increase before the election is called. So apart from everything else, it's going to be an extraordinary learning exercise, isn't it? Yep. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It'll be a real awakening as to how else, how other ways in which politics can be done. Community up as opposed to solely party down. I think it's really, there's another option that sort of feels to be somewhere in the mix, you know. Won't be every seat, but there'll certainly be a, a recalibration of the balance between where the community participates in our politics as much as the, what the parties will continue to do too. Dennis, thank you. We really appreciate spending time with us in the zone. Thank you. Thank you very much, Margot and Peter. Thank you, Dennis. Margot, thank you. See you next time in the zone. Okay, thanks, Peter. Our guest in the transit zone this time, Dennis Ginnivan, who was a key activist and operative in creating the Voices for Indi movement in Victoria, and now supports and mentors other similar community-based political movements and their candidates around Australia. If you'd like to email us at the transit zone, here is our email address, transitzonepod at gmail.com. We welcome your comments, your questions, your ideas for new podcast episodes. TransitZonePod at gmail.com. I'm Peter Clark in Melbourne, Australia. Thanks for listening and please join us again soon right here in the Transit Zone. You are now leaving the Transit, the transit Zone. zone.